0: Conclude a series today called Prophet. This is wow, eleven parts. This is the last one today. Next week we'll start something new, and it's also our sixth year anniversary as a church is going to be next uh, week. Yeah, next week it, it will be the weekend that we uh, launched six years ago. So this is part eleven, and the idea of of the whole series was we were looking into the messages of some of the prophets, in particular of the Old Testament their lives, the things they had to say, the things that they did, their actions, some of the things that they wrote, and try to realize that, that even though we're in a new world today in a totally different place than when those, those people lived, uh, the messages that, that they convey still have meaning for us today in our new world. And we covered a whole, a whole series of them, a whole litany of them, including some with no names, Uh, So we were kind of all over the place there. But I want to address a question today because we don't live in the Old Testament times. Uh, We don't even live in the New Testament times. I mean, we're 2,000 years removed from the Bible's New Testament. So a question that would be uh, relevant that I'm sure you're thinking of is, well, does God still do this today? Does God still speak to people by prophecy which is a strange word for us today in the 21st century, does he still do this? And remember, when we talk about a prophet and we use a a Bible understanding of what a prophet is, um, it's not something that you see in the movies, you know. Uh, It's not magic or superstition or crystal ball reading. Prophets did really two things, and both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, they They proclaimed things, so they said this is what God says, and so they spoke on behalf of God. This is how God feels about this situation. A lot of this was addressed to Israel as a nation. This is how God is thinking about this. This is what God is saying. This is a proclamation, or you could sometimes call it forth-telling. But on occasion, they would predict things, and they would say, such and such is going to happen. This calamity is coming, this event is coming, this king is coming, this nation is coming, and they would predict things into the future. Uh, We see them in the Old Testament, before the period of the kings, during the kings, we see them writing things like Isaiah and Ezekiel, write big, big books in the Old Testament. But again, the question is, what about today in the 21st century? Because that's where you and I live. Does God still do this today? Does God still communicate to people today by this method? This is a really, really hot question. Is God speaking to you maybe? Have you heard something that you think is from God, or someone's told you something and they say that it's from God? Does God still do this today? And so I want to give you uh, uh, an answer, and it's a, a strange answer. It's no and yes. It's no and yes. And you may think that that sounds a little strange. Uh, I'm from a Pentecostal minister. All right, this is a this is a church that's affiliated with the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada. We're part of the modern uh, Pentecostal movement that started about a 100 years ago, and there's about 1,200 churches across Canada that form this movement. And in the Pentecostal view, uh, and I'm not saying that all of you have that view, maybe some of you don't, but certainly in my view, you'd say, well, if you're a Pentecostal, then surely you believe in this stuff for today, because isn't that what Pentecostals believe, uh, that this is alive and well today? And I will say no. And I will say yes. And again, some may find that a little strange and wonder why I'm even talking about this in the first place. But let me give you why the answer is first, no. And uh, you may want to take pictures of what you see on the screen because some of what I'm about to say, if, you're, if you've trafficked a little bit in this whole realm of prophecy and the prophetic, which has been, wow, in, over the last couple of years. This has been even in mainstream secular and news media, this whole idea. Um, so you may be a little surprised at what I'm going to say. Uh, the answer first is no, in the sense that everything that God has wanted to say to the human race, everything that God wants to say to you and me, he's already said. It's, it's in this book. So the canon of Scripture is closed. He's not, there's no, there's nothing new that God wants to say to humanity. There's no new information that God wants to reveal. There's nothing, there's no message, there's no song, there's no book, there's no piece of media that's coming out that's on a par with this book in terms of authority, in terms of inerrancy, in terms of infallibility, in terms of the supernatural quality, there is nothing new that God wants to say in that sense. So he's, there's no more of that. It's, it finished with the last book of the Bible, which is the book of Revelation right? So you've got 66 books from Genesis to Revelation, the canon of Scripture is closed. Why do I say this? Because so often there is a term that's used where people say they have a revelation from God. They write a book and they say, for example, I've been to heaven and I know the dimensions of heaven. And God wants me to tell you all of the dimensions of heaven or hell or whatever because he didn't tell you in the Bible and so now I'm about to tell you in my book. As if the book is on the authority on the level of scripture, it is not. God is not revealing anything new in that sense that he hasn't already said already. And that may be really disappointing (laughs) for us because we want to hear God say new things. Well, everything that he said is already here. And by the way, you don't have to read it backwards and upside down, and you don't have to put it in a magical crossword puzzle and find secret messages in it and (laughs) all these things. You just need to read it straight in a language that you understand. Everything that God wants to say, he's already said. So in that sense, there's no new revelation. There's no new messages Uh, for the world that the world needs to hear that are even in the same ballpark as the Bible. Okay, so nothing new in that sense. And the last of the prophets, before Jesus at least, was who? It's on your screen. John the Baptist, right? As we learned last week, Jesus viewed him as the last and the greatest of that whole line of prophets. And then with with the coming of Jesus, you see that he is the prophet who was to come. So there's there's a prediction that Moses made in Deuteronomy that a prophet would come like him. And we're told in the book of Acts that Jesus is that one. So you have the the end of an era, if you will, with John the Baptist and the beginning of something else with Jesus. So there's nothing new in terms of what God wants to say to humanity. He, He said it already. We just have to pick it up and read it and interpret it the way that we should be interpreting it. But there's nothing new under the sun. So in that sense, there's no new prophecy. You still with me? Okay, the answer is also yes, though. It's not only no, it's also yes. Because there is what we can call illumination. Not revelation, but illumination. And the difference is a revelation is when you pull back the curtain on something. So, uh, you know, you have a big, big screen here. And by the way, the screens didn't work this morning. It took the technician about 25 minutes to get the screens working. And he had to press a button on his, uh, on his projector that was labeled alternative content. And when he pressed the button, we saw our, our stuff on the screen. So I joked to the technician. I said, I guess we really are alternative content, you know. Uh, so in illumination, something is brightened that was already there. But in Revelation, it's like the curtain is opened and you see behind a, uh, the blockage. Uh, the series that we're going to start next week is is called Behind the Curtain. And we're going to talk about death and the afterlife and all of the pieces and parts of that uh, as we move through the fall season. The, the revelation is God shows you something that you can't otherwise know. You can't intuitively grasp it. He has to pull back the curtain and reveal it to you. Illumination is different. In illumination, you're reading something you, there's a concept that you already are, see in the scripture, and it's illuminated for you. It's like the light bulb goes on. Bing! Now you understand. Now you see. Now you get it. That's not the same thing as revelation. It's just illuminating what's already there, and that certainly is alive and well today. But there are also prophecies in particular of a predictive nature by ordinary non-apostle people. And I'll show you a couple of examples in a minute. And the gift of prophecy when we look into the New Testament is displayed for us as active. Now, uh, in Pentecostal theology, and I'm one of those... Uh, we are not what you would call cessationists in our view of these gifts we're continuationists in our view of these gifts the fancy terminology what we're what, what I'm saying is that in in the view that i take of scripture the gifts of the spirit including prophecy did not cease so with the completion of the scripture they still did not cease in the cessationist view those gifts were only there until the completion of Scripture. Now we have the completion of Scripture. We don't need those gifts anymore. So that's the different views. Now, I have, you know, brothers and sisters who believe that view, and I have brothers and sisters who don't, and, you know, it's a kind of an in-house debate. But for our purposes this morning, this is coming out of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which talks about the operation of the gift of prophecy. Well, how can it operate if it's if if it's ceased? All right, and so th- this is the take that I that I see in the scripture, and so I want to try and show you a couple of examples of this um, in the Bible, in the Book of Acts. You see, curiously enough, the activity of this work of prophecy or the, the idea of God communicating to people this way post-coming of Jesus, but by ordinary people, not by apostles and people who had some sort of designation in Jesus' camp. One of the passages that I love that shows this is in Acts chapter 21, and you'll see this kind of uh, sprayed throughout Acts chapter 21 in the Bible's New Testament, and you have it's just dropped in there. Uh, but I love the passage. Uh, this is Luke uh, kind of dictating his, his journeys through different lands with Paul and so on, and he's kind of documenting it. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed in, in Ptolemy, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the home of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. Uh, there were seven men chosen at the beginning of the book of Acts to deal with an administrative problem, a problem of uh, people were complaining. One group was being favored over another group, and the apostles got together to say we need a group of people to solve this problem, and one of them who was picked was a man named Stephen, not an apostle, but certainly a, you know, a prominent uh, a member of the community. But as it turns out, and I love this passage just dropped in here, He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Wow. It just drops in and out. I mean, if I were living in the first century and I were a single man, I'm telling you, I'd be interested in one of these four ladies, right? Four single ladies and all of them prophesied. So says Luke. And Luke is a detailed writer. And he puts this in there. These are women. Uh, back in that day, the idea of of women in a, in a prominent role like that would have been certainly countercultural. These are unmarried young women who seem to be operating in this gift of prophecy. Curious, don't even have names. And we continue to uh, read this passage, and, and Luke drops in another one for us. He says, after we'd been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus, who came down from Judea, and coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, and he tied his own hands and feet with it, and he said, the Holy Spirit says, this is this is." both proclamation and prediction. In this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and hand him over to the Gentiles. Wow. The people seem to take this message quite seriously who were in Paul's entourage there. And Luke says, when we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem, which was Paul's Desire, as we read in the book of Acts. And then Paul answers them back and says, "'Why are you weeping and breaking my heart?' I'm not only ready to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. He wouldn't be dissuaded. The people give up and they say, "'Okay, the Lord's will be done.'" And then uh, Paul ends up getting arrested quickly. You can see the whole thing unfold, and you see that uh, in, in verse 33, he is indeed bound with two chains. And Luke doesn't even tell us, aha, that's the fulfillment of what this obscure man, Agabus, had predicted. You see, it's 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 being used, it's dropping in and out by obscure people, four unnamed young women, uh, this man named Agabus. You actually do see him in the book of Acts prior. In Acts chapter 11, uh, this man predicts a famine that would come. Verse 27, uh, uh, you have a list of some prophets who came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, one of them named Agabus, probably the same fellow who's mentioned in Acts 21, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. And Luke tells us this happened during the reign of Emperor Claudius. And we can check the record books under Claudius. We actually see several famines that took place uh, across the Roman Empire there. So you see that you see this gift active, not simply by people who are part of Jesus' immediate entourage, the apostles. You see it by unnamed people. You see it by obscure people, people of no great title or standing. So I would contend that the gift is alive and well. However, and this is a big however, I'm going to give you three tested and true ways. These are time-tested true, to know that the message that you think that you've received, maybe somebody told it to you, maybe you read it somewhere, maybe you heard it in a song, maybe you heard it in a preached message, whatever, you think that the message is from God, I'm going to give you three ways, these are pretty well consecutive, so you start with number one and you end with number three, that you can know if a message is truly, truly from God. Uh, Number one. First thing, and there's a verse that's cut off there, but I'll read it for you. And this is crucial. You need to test and evaluate and discern before you accept any alleged message from God. The first thing that you need to do is think and discern. And um, I'll use a modern-day term, think critically about what this is, about what you read, about what you heard, about what's been said to you, about what you had in a, a, a vision, a dream, whatever. You need to test and evaluate and discern before you accept it. Why do I say this? Because today, so often, if anyone says they've got a divine message, it is immediately swallowed up, full full speed without any kind of question, without any kind of discernment, especially if it's coming from someone with a title or a name or a reputation, it is immediately swallowed and bought as being true and as being of God. This, my friends, is not always the case. It does not matter who or where the message is coming from, Your responsibility as a Christian is to think about it, to evaluate it, to discern it, to analyze it before you accept it. And what happens is that people start swallowing information en masse without challenging it. And then later on, the whole thing crumbles like a big house of cards um, I'll give you a couple of examples in a moment. But look at 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5, verses 20 to 21. This is, you're going to see several instances of this throughout Paul's letters. You're going to see it through things that John writes, that Peter writes. It's a kind of a constant theme of the New Testament. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, he says, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. Note that, test them all. Don't treat them with contempt, but test them. This is the responsibility of the Christian, or if this is a message directed toward a community of faith, it's a community of faith that has to discern, that has to test it, that has to evaluate it. Folks, the last two years... Have, have really brought this to the forefront. And as I've said, this has made it into non-Christian news reporting and secular media as a... As a it's almost a part of the culture right now. The last couple of years, starting uh, with the pandemic and moving into the invasion of Ukraine, I mean, folks you could spend your whole day just watching all of these supposed prophetic words about all of these things. And I need to tell you folks, as a pastor, I find them quite disturbing. You need to discern and you need to think and you need to evaluate these things. So, I mean, I, it is it is whatever side of the of covid-19 that you're on i mean you may be on the the far end of it with the, you know the a conspiracy view or whatever you may be on that view or you may be on the total other view wherever you are this is a global worldwide thing that happened and everybody can agree to that. Even the conspiracy theories will say, well, it's a, it was the greatest conspiracy forced upon the world, you know, whatever. But everybody is going to agree that this is a worldwide thing that happened. Somebody needs to tell me, please, why is it that if, it, I mean, if all of this, this Litany, this information on the internet and all of the prophecies after prophecies after prophecies. Why is it that nobody called it? Why is it that nobody said, hello, a pandemic is coming. It's going to close everything down. Nobody said it. And I've seen people backtrack over it. And, well, we said half of this and we said half of that. The truth is nobody did. And when you look, it's funny, when you look into the pages of Scripture, Agabus, he didn't get it wrong. He said there's a famine coming, and it's going to spread across the Roman Empire. He got it right. He didn't hedge his bets. He didn't change his mind. He didn't say, well, it didn't happen this way because of this, and it didn't happen because of this condition or that condition. No. And I I find it disturbing that nobody called it. All of these so-called prophets... With huge, huge followings of people, none of them called it. We've got to think and evaluate and test. And then, when it happened, as I was researching for this message, when it happened, there were people who predicted, using the name of of God, that it would be over by Passover of 2020. Folks, it is a novel coronavirus is new, and it jumps onto the scene and spreads across the world like gangbusters extremely quickly and you've got people predicting that it's going to be over in two months. This was sad, folks. We've got to be careful and evaluate and discern. I, there's so much of this, especially online. The church is called to think about it. The church is, if anybody should be thinking critically about alleged words from God, it should be the church. This is the call of the New Testament. It doesn't mean to condemn the person. If, you, if, the, if the person is incorrect, it means you evaluate the message, and this is what the church was called to do. First Corinthians 14, verse 29, with the activity of this kind of gift in a church setting, two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. That means the other, people listen, they say, hmm, let's see if this is of God or this is not of God. It's the responsibility, the high calling of the Christian to evaluate and to see what is this. And this came to probably a fever pitch. I don't know why it is that the media seems to be so consumed with American politics. I mean, folks... It's almost like, if you watch the media, the only country that exists in the world is the United States of America, as if it's the center of the world. I mean, folks, there's a lot of other countries out there and a lot of other things going on in a lot of other places. And yet, according to a whole whole batch of people, again, with huge, huge followings, God seems to be particularly concerned with American politics and the re-election of the former president, Donald Trump, Folks, you had people who went on record who said, there's dozens and dozens of them who said that this man would get re-elected and uh, you and know, then when he didn't, it's so, well, we're going to backtrack, and we're going to say that, well, it's going to be in four years, and it's going to be this, and it's going to be that. Folks, we've got to think critically, and I'm not giving you a position for or against the, the, the former president. I'm telling you that when we hear messages like that, we have to think critically, and we have to discern, what are we listening to? Is this of God. Is this not of God? Very, very important. I didn't hear one. I I remember doing a video myself the day before the election, and I'll say the same thing today. I didn't hear one person prophesy that the other guy would win. Not one. I didn't hear one person prophesy that the other guy would well, he would win on paper, but it was stolen, you know, and you get into all of this drama with the U.S. politics. I didn't hear one of them said that. All of them unanimously, he's going to get in, he's going to, again, as if God is so concerned with the politics of one nation. Wow, it's, it's we need to wait carefully, First John chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether or not they are from God. Because you have many, he says, in the first century, many false prophets have gone into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, the incarnation, God has become man in the person of Jesus, an idea that was very much challenged in the writer's time here, that's how you know. When there's the acknowledgement of Jesus that He is God in the flesh, that's how you know, He says. So, folks, the the point is we've got to be thinking about it. We've got to be analyzing it. Before we swallow it, we have to discern. And if it doesn't pass that first sniff test, Of just basic logic and understanding then you have to reject it and you have to say there's presumption going on here maybe there's bad pizza maybe 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 the dream that I had was just the dream you know maybe it's like off folks do you know how many strange dreams I have how many strange dreams do you have You have tons of strange dreams. That doesn't mean that they're from God because they're strange. It means they're strange. Think about them. Maybe one of them out of 100 might be from God. I don't know. But, folks, you've got to discern and you've got to evaluate. And sometimes you just have to say, well, that one is, I don't think so. It doesn't pass that first sniff test, you see. I have had in my ministry... uh, the occasion, the odd occasion of, of trying to help people uh, who have issues with uh, the demonic world, okay? I have had people who have come to me who uh, privately who say that they have these kinds of issues and whatever term they want to use, possession, uh, whatever, uh, obsession, uh, whatever it is. And they say they have these problems with with. This unseen realm of the demonic. Every pastor has had people who come to that pastor with that kind of question. And I've had that happen to me before. You know what my first reaction is? No. My first reaction is, let's find another explanation before we jump to the possibility that it could be the demonic my first instinct is to evaluate and to use critical thinking to see who is this person what is this person's background where are they coming from why would they say this give me an example etc cetera, etc cetera. and then when all other possibilities fall then you are by force put into a place where you have to say okay this is definitely of a demonic nature do you know how many people I have seen who have said it, and uh, it wasn't—it wasn't the case. Maybe they were looking for attention. Maybe they misunderstood something, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Very rare have I run into a true, genuine case, but I have run into some. Why? Because you've got to again when you're dealing with something that allegedly comes from a supernatural source. The first thing that you have to do is analyze it. And you've got to think, and we are the ones who've got to lead the way in doing that, in discernment. It seems to be a lost discipline today, but one that definitely needs to be practiced, especially when you can put any message you want on a device that sits in your pocket that can go anywhere and listen to anything around the world. Number two, bring the Bible to the message, not the message to the Bible. What do I mean by this? Sometimes when people claim to have heard from God, in whatever shape or form, again, maybe you dreamed it, maybe someone else did and they told you, maybe someone said it to you, maybe you read it, maybe it was in a song, maybe it was in a sermon, maybe it was on the television, whatever it was, you take the Bible to the message and not the message to the Bible. When we take the message to the Bible, what we do is we want to justify it by finding a proof text or a series of proof texts and say, aha, you see? Here's what I want it to say, and I I, I found it. I found it. You see, this one verse justifies my word or my uh, uh, message, you see? And we go running to the Bible to try and justify our claim. Rather than doing that, bring the, the, the Bible to the message. In other words, it should already be there. It should already be in the Scripture It should be, if it passes the first test of discernment, then it should already be in the Scripture. It should be a no-brainer that you should look at it and you should say, hey, this is an obvious one that's here in the Scripture. But you do not go to Scripture to justify something. You let Scripture speak to the something instead. Let me give you a couple of examples of this. Uh, This old story that I heard, of a a pastor who was actually having an affair with his secretary married man a, having this affair went to a, a friend of his and said I am going to divorce my wife and uh, be w- and marry this woman who who I'm in love with and his his friend looked at him shocked you know and said well like what, what what's wrong with you why are you doing this and what the, what the pastor said was, well, I see it in the Scripture. The Bible says that the, t- the two shall become one flesh. And I was never truly one flesh with my wife. And so with this woman, it's there. With my wife, it's not there. And the friend of his looked at him and scratched his head and said, Sir, you have four children with your wife. But you see what's going on there. It's the running to the Bible to pick a verse and to make the verse justify the behavior, which is obviously, in this case, sinful behavior. You say to yourselves, is that a true story? Yes, it is. But that's what we tend to do, folks. We tend to want to justify alleged words or actions or decisions we're about to make and say that they're from God by running and looking for a proof text. No, you should, you should be so familiar with the Bible already that you bring the Bible to the thing. And the thing becomes what has to be tested, not the other way around. So I remember a, a personal experience in my own life. that's a little more amusing than the first one. And uh, I remember uh, I was in, in the church and um, I wasn't a pastor at the time. And a, and a, a leader in the church, you know, who's a recognized leader and uh, with authority and all that, takes me aside in his vehicle, you know, one Sunday and, and closes the door and says, You know, you really should do such and such and such thing in, in the church. I think you'd be really good at it. And you really should do such and such a thing. And, you know, it was quite intimidating, this sort of, uh, you know, high and mighty person who was, you know, recognized leader. He goes and says that to me. I was this young guy, and so he let me out. I closed the door, and, uh, you know, I went home, and a couple of days later, found myself praying about this, uh, and, and I, it's one of the very rare times in my life, folks, that I, I distinctly sensed that God was amused by my prayer, that as if he was laughing juckling at my prayer, as if to say, you know, you, you take this thing and you bring this to me as if, I mean, who is this guy who talks to you? Who's he compared to me? You, you take his word that you should be doing such and such. Did I tell you you should be doing such and such? I never told you such, to do such and such. So why do you take his word and bring it to me for justification? It was like amusing to God. And, of course, I didn't do the thing that I was asked to do. Ended up doing it a few years later, but not because of the will of some guy with authority in the church, but because I felt that it was God who was saying it. You see the difference, folks. You, you don't go uh, seek justification for action and for supposed words from God. The Bible will speak to it. And it has to come under the authority of Scripture, not the other way around. Number three, and this is one that a lot of people miss. If it passes the first test of discernment, if it passes the second test of the Scripture has been brought to it and it's there in the Scripture, the next thing that you need to do, and again, this is often missed, is to be accountable. This is a basic principle of discipleship in the Bible, to be accountable to another person. You go to another person, a trusted person, and you tell that person, I think that God may be telling me something. Through such and such, and you describe the experience, and you say, I look, "I've looked to the Bible, and I see this in the Scripture. I see Scripture speaking to it. Uh, I, this is what I discern. This is what I feel. This is what I see. This is the direction that I have to take. This is the decision I have to make, etc., etc." And you take that and you bring it to somebody else. And if the somebody else looks at the whole thing, it looks at the situation and says you know i i i can be in agreement with that i can see that uh, that that really resonates in my own my own spirit and i i can say amen to your direction and to your your choice and to your decision and so on well then folks you've got really really solid reasons to believe that you have heard from God on something but that is a lost another lost discipline because what if the person looks at you and says, you're crazy or you totally missed it or what you're doing, what you're seeing, what you're deciding, what you're interpreting is not only off, it may be in the realm of sin off. You, you make yourself accountable to somebody and they may tell you something you may not want to hear. But that's what, what a disciple does. You say, well, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, maybe I'm off, maybe, you know, it's past the first two tests, but I want to I be accountable to somebody. And that implies that you know people. That implies that you have relationships with other Christians. And, they, and the relationship is, is close to the point where you can actually talk to somebody honestly about what you dreamt, about what you're perceiving from God, about what you read, about what you heard, about whatever. And this, again, that you, you'll only find this one way, folks, in the church. You will only find it in the community of faith, the relationships that you have with other believers. That's really one of the reasons why the church exists, is that people together try to serve God. And they... They speak into one another's lives, and they confess their sins to one another, and they grow in relationships and fellowship and community with one another. And that's where you find love, and that's where you find forgiveness, and that's where you find understanding, and that's where you find support, and that's where you find courage. You can only find that in the community of faith, in the church, because it's only the church that's running around and saying, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It's only the church that's doing that, wherever it is, around the world, wherever, meeting online, wherever. And so where you have the fellowship and where you have the community, you are able to do that. And that's how you know, ultimately, that you have either heard from God or maybe you haven't. And if you haven't, you haven't. If you haven't, maybe it's presumptive. If you haven't, maybe it's just a bad dream. If you haven't, maybe it's indigestion. You know, if you, whatever... But go through the process and use the, use the mind and the faculties that God has given you. This is one of the ways that you actually worship Him, is to discern with whether, whether or not what is said is of Him or not of Him. Would you stand with me, please? We're going to close the service in prayer, and uh, Sean and Rose and Nick, if you, if you want to come and... Go ahead and play something as we get set to dismiss the people. I really believe folks that uh, because of especially the internet and the availability of information that there is so much um, so much out there that this could be applied to and folks uh, i 'm not against it, and I want you to say that, to to understand that. Uh, I'm not speaking in a condemnatory fashion toward uh, all of these things that have happened. But, folks, we need to go through this process. It helps us to grow and to be stronger followers of Christ in the end. Teach it to your young people. Teach it to your children. Those of you who have kids in this room, you teach it to them and teach them to understand and to be uh, critical about these things. Father, I pray for each one who's in the room today, those who are online, uh, those who are going to watch or listen to recordings later on. Uh, Lord, in the name of, of, of Jesus, uh, you, would, um, you would once again uh, uh, use us uh, as people who endeavor to follow you. You would use us, God, uh, to speak to a culture. You would use us in our places of work, in our schools. You would use us to be people who uh, are your hands and your feet and your voice uh, and at the same time God uh, we would be those who are who are uh, discerning. we would be those who continually acknowledge Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came in the flesh. We would be those God who would have a stable head in crazy times. We would be those lord uh, who would show consistency even when the world is is just crazy and seems to be on fire with all kinds of different things happening at the same time. Help us, Lord. I pray for each household uh, and each family represented here that the peace and the presence of God uh, would go with us and be tangible in our lives this week. We pray together in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great, great Sunday today. Remember to pick up your kids over in screen 11. Uh, Next week will be our sixth anniversary and we'll start a new series together. Hope you can join us. God bless you, everyone.